It's great to be here with you on this Open House Sunday. Um, anytime we start off a new series, I, I get so excited because it's like taking a journey together. And this morning we're starting this new series in this book of Titus. And Titus is a, is a short book. It's three chapters and yet uh, it has so many lessons for us. Thus the, the title of the series, uh, Little Book, Big Lessons. It's, it, it's one of my favorite leadership books. And in fact, over time I've read a ton of leadership books. Uh, maybe some of these are familiar with you. Uh, the 360-degree leader, uh, Lincoln on leadership, the leadership challenge. Uh, then there's one of my favorites, uh, Leadership Principles of Attila the Hun. If you haven't read that one, that's, that's one you might want to pick up, Leadership Principles of Attila the Hun. Uh, I graduated with a leadership degree in evangelism and discipleship. And, and, and so I, I share all that just to say that I've read a ton of leadership material. And, and second to none, uh, my favorite leadership book is the book of Titus. Uh, Titus is a book on, on Christian leadership that really provides a plan of developing a healthy church that's not quick or easy. It, it's not a quick or easy plan. It's just the best plan. It's the development of, of God's church. And I think it's important when we say God's church because so many times when we think about leadership, we think of sort of the organizational leadership, right? But when we talk about God's church, God's church is the sum total of every one of his followers, God's church is a sum total of every one of his followers. So when we talk about leadership, it's not just the organization of leadership. It's also self-leadership. It's our leadership of, of allowing the spirit of God to direct our lives, to, to be the people that he's called us to be. Uh, therefore, this Titus deals with the church's structure, but also how the sanctified church operates in a fallen world. How do we, as those who have said yes to Jesus, live in such a way that we reflect him to the world around us. And in the book of Titus, we're going to find much said about that. Paul's writing Titus to Titus. And so there's times in this series that, that I'll try to be as clear as possible when I'm talking about the book or talking about the person. Uh, but it, Titus is in Crete and Paul is wintering in Decapolis. And he, he's writing to Titus to say, this is how you're going to execute this, this plan uh, to establish the church there in Crete. There's been a young church that's there. It still needed some, some leadership structure, some, some teaching. And so Paul sends Titus to, to go and sort of be his representative to the church in Crete. Titus is a Greek. He probably comes to Christ under Paul's ministry. Um, church tradition tells us that Titus was, was probably the son of a Cretan uh, noble family, a Cretan noble family. And church tradition also tells us that Titus would eventually, later in life, go back to Crete, and he'll die there. He's actually buried on the island of Crete, is what we're told by church tradition. Titus was written about AD 64, which puts it in the same time period of when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, a letter to another one of his young protégés. And so this is an amazing letter. There's three leadership principles from Titus that I want you to keep in your mind as we go through this series, as, because they're going to be talked about over and over again in the three chapters. Again, leadership is not quick or easy. And, and as I think about that, I, I remember I was a, a new lead pastor at a church. As a matter of fact, it was the first time I'd ever been a lead pastor and I had this particular challenge. And so I sent out an email to about 25, 30 uh, mentors and friends and said, hey, give me some advice on this situation. And, and everyone responded. Some of them responded with pages. I didn't ask for pages, but responded with pages. But one of, my, one of my key mentors in my life, Bill Jones, sent back just one sentence. He said, Craig, leadership is often hard. <laughs> That's what he said. 
And, and that is so true to point. And that's actually what I needed to hear. But leadership is neither quick nor easy. Leadership's everyone's responsibility. Again, we'll find in the book of Titus that when we look at leadership, yeah, there, there's a calling, there's a structure of leadership within the body of Christ, but that every single one of us has responsibility to lead in one way or another. And that confrontation needs to occur, but it's not the main thing. Confrontation needs to occur, but it's not the main thing. These things will be addressed over and over again in the three chapters we're going to explore this fall. But as we begin with this text of Titus, I want to begin by looking at Paul's greeting to Titus. In fact, it's interesting in the book of Titus that Paul's greeting to Titus proportionally is the largest of all of his greetings. And so he must have meant it with some type of deep significance. And so it's worthy of our attention this morning. And so we're not even going to get past the greeting. We're going to look at Paul's greeting, Titus 1, 1 through 4. Follow along with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. One of the things you may notice is that the first few verses there in particular are one complete sentence. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting when we read scripture, and it's all according to what translation you read, but some of the translations try to stay as close to the sentence structure as they can to the original language. And, and part of the reason is, is because uh, Greek is written differently than English. In English, we, we understand that, uh, that we try to make our sentences as pithy as possible, right? And every sentence carries on one complete thought. And the Greeks weren't really worried about what we would call run-on sentences because their main importance was to understand what tied to what. And so when you see a long sentence like that in the Greek, it's because all of that related to one another. It's not several thoughts. It's one complete thought that Paul was trying to convey to Titus through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what is Paul conveying? Well, first of all, he's talking about his identity. Paul writes, he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. And that his identity influences purpose. They understood that he was called to these things for the sake of the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge, for their truth, for the knowledge of truth accords with godliness. And so Paul was called to be an apostle, but he was called to be an apostle so that others would find faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul calls himself an apostle, He's not trying to lord it over Titus. He isn't saying, hey, listen to me, I'm an apostle and you're not. He's stating his apostle that gives him the right to write the letter. But more important than that, he's saying, I'm an apostle that God's called me for a special work. And that work is that everyone would come to Jesus. But in particular, Paul's a unique apostle. He's called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Cretans, to people like Titus. And so when Paul writing it this way, he, he wants us to understand that the gospel is for everyone, that all are invited, and that's part of his calling. It's tied to his identity and who he is in Christ. And, and he, he speaks of this truth that's so tied to godliness, that this truth really requires godliness of life. And, and certainly, he, he's speaking this way because he understands, and he'll address it later in the letter, that there's false teachers. 
false teachers who are leading people astray, who are saying one thing and living a different way. And he's saying that's not the way the gospel is. That we're to reflect what we're teaching, reflect what we know. And I love that he's writing to God's elect. And there's been a lot, like there, there's, there's theologians who argue, who's God's elect? What's it mean to be God's elect? And here's, here's a simple definition. God's elect are those who God claims to be his people in response to their faith in Christ. God, it's God's people, right? God's who he's chosen. You, you've accepted Christ and he's chosen and, and you're in relation, you're, you're part of God's elect. And so how do you know if you're God's elect? Did you say yes to Jesus? You're God's elect. Well, I want to be God's elect. We'll say yes to Jesus. And he'll affirm your decision. He'll welcome you into the family. And we realize that the faith is the standard of measurement by which the Cretans were to measure and evaluate their life. And I think here it's really important because we can get so wrapped up into sort of judging who we are by the people around us. You know, am I doing better than them? Am I doing worse than them? And, and, and what Paul will, will over and over again say throughout Titus, and it's true throughout the scriptures, is, is that the true measure of, of how we're growing, who we are, is the word of God itself. See, there's faith. That's what we have. We have faith in Jesus Christ. Then there's the faith, which is the gospel. And, and so as, as Paul encourages Titus and the Cretans to, to be measured by the word, that's true for us as well. We're to be measured by the word. Paul fulfills his purpose in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Think about that. God's plan from the very beginning was that we would have eternal life. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which he had been called and entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Why preaching? Because people won't know unless they're told. They hear the word. They respond to the word. The gospel gives certainty of eternal life because God does not lie. God's true to his word. Now, why does Paul want that point right up front in the letter? Because there's three groups of liars that Titus is working with. The first is the Cretans themselves. And there's a passage we're going to look at that talks about the Cretans as a culture being known to be liars. Uh, the second is the gods that these Cretans, the Greeks, were worshiping. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you realize that they were tricksters. They weren't to be trusted. In fact, unlike us worshiping God because he's a God of love and because he's worthy of our worship, the Greeks worshiped their false gods because they were fearful of them. They didn't want to tick them off. Wanted to somehow appease them. But they were known to be liars and tricksters. And the third group, of course, were the false teachers. And so Paul, from the very beginning, says, unlike any group out there, Paul, uh, Paul says, God is trustworthy. But above anything else, God is the only one 100% trustworthy, 100% honest. Think about that. All of us have put our trust elsewhere and have been disappointed. Whether it be ourselves, whether it be others, whether it be systems. God does not lie. He's true to his word. And at the proper time, the word was preached. He's writing, of course, to Titus, who he proclaims his true child in a common faith. And he gives this great sort of statement of, of blessing over him. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Much like Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, he writes to Titus, you're my true child. And I think it's so important we realize, but he wasn't calling Titus childish. 
He wasn't saying, I'm here and you're here. Paul was a spiritual dad to Titus. I wonder how many of you out there have had spiritual children. I mean, they could have been your biological children, but they don't have to be. Just people you've poured into and, and cared for and prayed over. And so here's really Paul writing as a very proud spiritual father to a spiritual son who's accomplishing this great work for God on the island of Crete. And he talks about their common faith. That not only is, is, is Titus a true child in the, in the, in the faith, but he's just part of this common faith. And the common faith is the faith and salvation we share in Jesus Christ. In fact, we share a common faith if you're in Jesus based upon the word of God, based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, based upon his very spirit working in and through us. Notice then that God's grace brings peace. I love that statement. God's grace brings peace. Now, when we look at this introduction, I think the key question for us this morning is, so what? I mean, great words. Paul writes to Titus, and through Titus, we get to read them. But, but what lessons can we pull out to apply to our life today, I mean, nearly 2,000 years later? And I want to share three lessons from Paul's greeting with us this morning that we can apply to our lives, that we can, we can trust in. We can trust in. In, in no particular order, I'm going to share them. The first is this. Truth is always inseparably linked to godliness. Truth is always inseparably linked with godliness. Doctrine becomes hazardous when it's divorced from godly living. Doctrine's hazardous when it's divorced from godly living. What do I mean by doctrine? Doctrine is the body of teachings of the Christian faith concerning its central beliefs, which is grounded in Scripture, grounded in Scripture, and aims to maintain the integrity of Christianity. Doctrine is of central importance to Christian preaching and teaching in that it, it, it really equips the people of God for effective and faithful service to the world. In fact, let me say this, that I believe that truth must produce godliness or it's not truth. Or at least it doesn't have the power that truth should have. And you say, well, Craig, what, what do you mean? Well, godliness consists of expressions of, of God's character in our everyday life. And as we grow from one degree of Christ-likeness to another, that we should be able to reflect the truth in which we're preaching, in which we're living. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. You preach every day whether you know it or not. We all preach a gospel, whether it's a true gospel or not the true gospel, a false gospel, by the way we live, the way we talk, the way we treat one another. And so it would do us no good to, to gather here on, on Sunday morning in a service like this and talk about the God of love and not leave the walls of this church and be loving. How many of you agree with that? It, 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 it's nothing more than a joke to come and talk about the God of mercy and leave the walls of this church and not be merciful. It, it, it does no good to, to come and talk about the fact that God is patient and kind and then head on out into the, the world outside these walls and not be patient and kind to others. Now, now catch this. It, it, while our expressions and behaviors will never achieve godly perfection, this side of paradise, right? Our, our being perfected enables us to reflect the nature of God himself through our devotion and obedience to Christ. That as we grow in our relationship with God, that the very character of Christ should be formed in us and should be reflected to the world around us. You've heard the say, statement, I'm sure, that they don't care what you know until they know how much you care. Well, I'll, I'll add on to that. It's not as good a statement or as clean a statement, but 
Don't talk unless you're going to show up. I could say it differently, but it just seemed a little bad. I was going to say, shut up or show up, show up before you show up. You, know, you, you get the point, right? Not, not that we're perfect, but, but to talk about the fact that God loves people and not love them ourselves is, is really inconsistent and, and loses its power. But it's the very character of Christ within us that Paul writes about to the Corinthians. He says that the God has age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. They can't see the light of the glory of the gospel. But he's placed that light in us, earthen vessels. Not perfect vessels, earthen vessels. But somehow as we're growing in Christ, it's a reflection of who God is. Jesus said to, to his followers right after he prays the high priestly prayer, he says, I know that they'll, they'll understand why I came if they see the way you love one another. Most churches would be blown away when they think about this. I don't think as crosswinds we are, but, but it's our love for each other that reflects the peace of heaven on earth. Anytime I hear a church in conflict, I go, that's, that's not heaven on earth. That's something else. And, and so this, this, this marriage between truth and, and godliness is so important. Putting God's truth into practice, godliness is not to, then the work of just sort of a, a special few sort of super Christians. It's the call, the responsibility, and the gifting of all of us who are in Christ in an ever-increasing measure, and I say that because wherever you start with Jesus, there's growth. And you've heard me say many times, almost every weekend, I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm a work in progress. And so the key is to be a work in progress, to measure ourselves according to Scripture, to not put ourselves down, but to be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Christ as we're growing in Him to the world around us. The second lesson. Eternal life begins in the here and now, but it's also a hope because it's not yet complete reality in our experience. I love what Paul writes about eternal life in, in that one we'll call super sentence. Eternal life was promised before time began. You know, it's manifested through preaching, and he's preaching it through the command of, uh, of God. And there's this beautiful reality that eternal life begins the moment we say yes to Jesus. Like that's when it begins, when we say yes to Jesus, when we've been created for eternal life. I mean, think about it. Anytime you hear a person say, there has to be more we've been made for, right? Or, or this world seems to be so off. Uh, we as Christians can sit back and say, it is. And yes, you are. That we were created to live in paradise, but, but we messed it up. You say, well, I wasn't there, but if we were, we would have messed it up too. That's the whole point. And ever since we were kicked out of Eden, we've been, we've been looking for it, desiring it, wanting it. That's the peace of God within each and every one of us, knowing that we've been made for eternity and yet we're here. And, and so we say yes to Jesus and it begins, not the quantity, the quantity of eternal life happens when we pass, but the quality Come on, give testimony this morning, at least by shaking your head. How many of us, when we say yes to Jesus, realize that the quality of life changed? That the resources of heaven are at our disposal. In fact, one of the early descriptors of Christians was the way. Isn't that beautiful? We should bring that back, the way. Why? Because it's the way to that quality of life. It's the way, it's the right way. And so in one sense, eternal life happens the moment we say yes to Jesus, and in another sense, it's something we're still waiting for. But it's a sure hope. It's not a hope like I hope it doesn't rain today. 
It's a definite hope. It's hope because it hasn't fully happened yet, but it's something we know will because God is what? True to his word. See, to be in Christ is to have eternal life. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we don't have to wait for eternal life. We can have that quality today, and and Paul writes about that. And I I find it interesting that these two doctrinal foundational lessons, these first two lessons I shared with you, that found in Paul's greeting to Titus, that Paul lays his claim to truth and authority, calling the church in Crete and us to particular standards of behavior and relationships because truth is nailed down in Jesus himself. He says, Titus, this is who I am in Christ. Titus, this is who you are in Christ. Church, this is who we are in Christ. And it should affect the way we think. It should affect the way we live. It should affect every area of our life. And it ties into this third and last lesson I'll share with you this morning from the greeting. Believers are to find their identity in Christ, which speaks of who we are in our purpose. Our identity in Christ. What's, what's that mean? We're identified with him, not anything else. And so often we try to find our identity in everything else. Maybe it's our work. Maybe it's our family. This, that, or the other thing. If I had a whiteboard, we could, we could probably fill it with where we try to find our identity. But the only place that matters is the only place where it truly is real. And that is our identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. Our creator, the one who loves us. And what did Paul understand? He said, if I understand my identity, I'll understand my purpose. And Paul is challenging Titus. If you understand your identity, you understand your purpose. And he challenges us this morning. He says, listen, if you understand your identity, you understand your purpose. Think about it. As God's child, identify with him to Jesus Christ. You're loved. You're chosen. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're adopted. I feel like that just went, I mean, if that's not enough to gather and celebrate Jesus for, I don't know what is. I'm going to say it again. Let, Let it wash over you. If you're a child of God this morning, if you said yes to Jesus, and again, if you're like, man, I want those things, just say yes to Jesus. But if you said yes to Jesus, you're, you're, you're loved in a profound way. You say, well, I'm not loved if I don't say yes to Jesus. Yes, you are, but you'll never receive it the way that God intended unless you're in relationship with Christ. You're loved. You're chosen. You're forgiven. You're redeemed made righteous, you're adopted, you're part of God's family. And God is the one who grows us in faith. And as we read through the book of Titus, it's all about him taking us from one degree of Christ's life to another, being like Jesus, sharing his love and his message with others, understanding we were a part of his family. And in Paul's greeting, this short greeting to this short letter, what big lessons he shares with us. I was thinking about this greeting and, and couldn't help but think about my own upbringing. When I was being brought up in my home, um, I understood that I was a cooper. And, and, and this may sound weird, but that was a big deal for my dad. And, and so he made sure my brother and I understood the benefits and the expectations of being a cooper quite often. Like we understood that being a cooper meant that we had a whole family supporting us. Like we're never alone. Like we had a whole family supporting us. 
also was made known of the expectations. I would understand that a cooper doesn't lie. Now, often I was reminded of that when I said something that wasn't necessarily true. Coopers don't lie. We're faithful. We're strong and on and on. Dad would teach us. When I was out and about, I understood that I represented our family and that was a big deal. I was to represent our family well. Our name meant something. Now, did anyone else think that? I have no idea. But for our family, it did. Our name meant something. And we were to be true and honest and faithful. And when we weren't, we were corrected. There were times when I would go to school. and I, I fell short of what the expectations were. And the teacher's call would beat me home. And I'd be corrected. And I'd be reminded, this is what a cooper is. I, I think that's why when I came to Christ... It really wasn't hard for me to realize I was part of the family of God. For some, that's really hard to embrace. But I think that when I became a Christian at a young age and as I grew as a Christian, it wasn't really hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that we're a part of a family and that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, you've probably heard me say this before, whether you like it or not, if you're in Christ, I'm your brother. And guess what? I'll be your brother in eternity. So learn to like it. But we're family. And with that family... We understand that there's, there's benefits and there's expectations. And Paul's writing that in the book of Titus. The benefit is salvation. The benefit is, is having a whole family around us and having the resources of heaven at our disposal. And the expectations is living like that's happened in us. Like if we're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, and by the way, you can't really be a, a follower of Jesus and not be a disciple. You can't be saved and not be someone who's committed to, to following him. And, and so if we're, if we're Christians, which means that we've found salvation in Christ and we're following Christ and we're being changed by Christ and on mission with Christ, and there should be a difference between us and those who haven't done that. That's the expectation. And we look at the word of God and we say, Lord, help me. Help me be changed by this word. In fact, when I approach the word of God, oftentimes I'll pray, Lord, as I seek to master your word, help your word master me. And that's a real point. Because if God's word masters me, I'm, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be a different husband, a different friend, different leader, different citizen, different neighbor. So that's what Titus is really all about. It's about what does it mean to be on the way, the right way, to live as a person who's found Jesus and walking with him and trusting him and in this imperfect world, as imperfect people being perfected by God. How does that all work? Well, stick with it. As we go through Titus, we're going to find out. I want to end by, by simply uh, praying over you as my church family. I, I want to take the words of Paul that he sort of prayed in his greeting to Titus and, and, and sort of prayed over you. They're simple words. It's just one statement. But I prayed this morning to you, my church family, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's a benediction of sorts. To you, my church family, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And grace and peace really brings two remarkable thoughts together when you think about it. Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor at work in the lives of us through Jesus Christ. That God loves us not because of what we have or haven't done, but simply because he loves us. And in Jesus, we have this loving relationship with him. And this results in a harmony and well-being, that this peace of God saturating our lives, this growing peace flowing from us to the world around us.
And so I encourage you this morning, I, I ask you by two simple questions. First of all, where are you with Jesus? If you have to say yes to Jesus, why not this morning, whether you be in this room or down in the chapel or online, take that step of, of entering into the family of God. And if you're part of the family of God, maybe this is a question I ask myself this daily. I say, Lord God, please, please help me follow your leading today. Because I don't know about you, but I have found when I do it my way, I mess things up quick. <laughs> but God's way is the right way, the best way, the rewarding way. Church family, be really honest with you. I, I pray a prayer almost every single morning. In fact, I could say every morning, but I'm not perfect, so I'm sure I've missed one, but I can't remember when I have in a long time. Because I'm part of God's family, I just simply pray in the morning. I say, God, help me not do anything today that will dishonor you, that will dishonor my family or my church family. I don't pray that because I feel like I have to. I pray because I want to. I want to be more today than I was yesterday for Jesus. Again, not because I have to, because he just loves me so much, and I just want to love him back by loving others. And I think that's the heart of what Paul is writing to Titus and through the book of Titus to us. Receive God's love in such a way that you'll live as part of his family. And trust me, that'll impact every relationship in your life. Your marriage, your relationship with coworkers, schoolmates, your neighbor, the world around us. Wherever you find yourself this morning, won't you... Take that next step that God's calling you to take with him. You'll never regret it. The way is the best way. His way is the best way. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just allowing us to, to come here this morning and gather in your name, to put your glory on display, to be able to explore your word. And although we only went through four verses, one of them, uh, three of them actually is one complete sentence. Wow, they're packed with so much. Titus is truly a little book with such big lessons. And I pray, Father God, that we would be individuals who would commit ourselves to your word, that we'd be individuals who commit ourselves to allowing your spirit to work in and through us, to, to transform us, to live the life that we've been created to live because there's no better life than that one. God, if there's anyone yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that perhaps even now in the quietness of their heart, they would say, Lord, thank you for dying from our sins, being resurrected for my salvation. I receive you as Lord and Savior. We welcome them into the family, your family, our family, God. I pray, Father, that for, for each of us, that as we take some of these lessons we've looked at and others, that perhaps the Spirit has sort of pulled out for each individual because you meet us where we're at. That, God, we wouldn't just let them fade away, but that somehow that what you've done in the midst of this gathering would make a difference when we scatter throughout this region. That we know that when we go, we go in your name. We go in your power. With your forever presence. And may that make a difference, not just in us, but in this region, the world around us, I pray. In the places where we live, where we go to work, where we go to school and play. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for my church family. Thank you for the work you are doing in and through us. Thank you that you are a God on the move. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.